a young man dies by his own hand. But was the actual murderer his girlfriend's cell phone? Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another episode of the KMH Podcast. As always, this is Brad, here to walk you through this wonderful tale of woe. We'll be discussing the death of Conrad Roy and the involvement of his girlfriend, Michelle Carter. Before we get into it, I have to acknowledge Jesse Barron. He's a reporter who did an article in Esquire magazine called The Girl from Plainville. It was published in August 2017. If you're interested in learning anything further about this case, find that article. He does a fantastic job in getting into the nuts and bolts of everything to do with this case. I pulled a lot of my facts from his article. Did not plagiarize. Did my own independent research, too. But he definitely helped form the backbone of this one, and he deserves props. So please go look up that article if you find this case compelling. Okay, so let's get to the crime. On July 14th of 2014, 18-year-old Conrad Roy took his own life by carbon monoxide poisoning in a commercial parking lot in Massachusetts. During the police's investigation, then-17-year-old Michelle Carter, his pseudo-girlfriend, became a subject of interest as she texted with Conrad over 1,000 times the week before his death. Yes, That's right, 1,000 text messages in the seven days before he died. Michelle was charged with and eventually found guilty of involuntary manslaughter in 2017, yet she was nowhere near the scene of Conrad's death. So why is she considered a murderer? All right, well, let's talk about these two kids. Michelle was described as relentlessly cheerful, aggressively cheerful, like she would hug a puppy too tightly, that sort of attitude, you know? She would apologize and thank people too much. She came across to her schoolmates as being sheltered and excessively naive. She was not known to have many real friends. She also suffered from a variety of health issues. She suffered from a pretty severe eating disorder that caused her to become hospitalized during her freshman year of high school. She was known to cut herself, engage in other forms of self-harm. She was on an antidepressant during the time Conrad died. She did attend regular therapy sessions to help cope with her issues. Conrad was a bit more of a loner, for lack of a better term. I don't think that's the perfect way to describe him, but with my limited vocabulary, we'll go with loner. He was extremely smart and graduated from high school with honors in 2014, He was accepted to a local college to study business, but decided not to chase that dream. And instead, it appeared it looked like he was going to go into the family business, which was captaining tugboats. He Indeed, he had received his captain's license during the end of his senior year. Now, Conrad had his own demons. He struggled with anxiety and depression also suffered some pretty severe physical abuse from his father, one time ending up in the hospital from the beatings he received. Now, importantly for this case, Conrad had also attempted suicide once by overdosing on Tylenol, 
But he was saved from death after he called a friend to say goodbye, and the friend, being freaked out, and rightfully so, called 911. His life was saved. Though Conrad lived within 30 miles of Michelle, they didn't meet until they were both visiting family in Florida in 2012. That's like destiny, right? You know, a fairy tale come true. But on their return to Massachusetts, they rarely, rarely saw each other, even being only 30 minutes apart. And they kept their relationship going mainly through text messages and phone calls. Oddly, a soccer teammate of Michelle's reported that she, Michelle always referred to Conrad as a friend and never her boyfriend. But when the new school year started after Conrad's death, Michelle became a big force in raising suicidal awareness and even did a fundraiser for a local group that championed suicide awareness, and the donation was made in Conrad's name. At one point during the relationship, Conrad expressed a desire to have a Romeo and Juliet type of relationship with Michelle, which initially she thought was sweet until she realized he was talking about both of them ending their lives in their teenage years. She strongly objected to that. When he was trying to figure out his life one night, he kind of decided that moving to California sounded like a good idea, and she was very distraught over this said she'd have to come with them because she couldn't imagine her life without him. Having said all that, it's, it is odd that she would be telling her classmates that they're just friends. The only reason I can think for this is apparently Conrad lived in kind of a blue-collar, working-class sort of town, while Michelle lived in more of a yuppie, upper-class part of town. And so, living across the tracks, maybe he wasn't as cool a boyfriend as she wanted to show off in high school. Like we just noted, they both had some pretty serious mental health issues, and that seemed to fuel their relationship. On one hand, it doesn't seem like a stretch to say Conrad enjoyed having a cute blonde kind of doting over him when he was having difficulties. But Michelle seemed to want to compete on who had the worst fate. For example, when Conrad discussed that his stomach was ruined by a suicide attempt, Michelle responded by saying that her liver was damaged from her eating disorder. Conrad one time reported seeing the devil while he was in the hospital recovering from a suicide attempt. Michelle, right on cue, claimed that the devil crawled into bed with her one night and told her she was going to hell. It's really kind of freaky, huh? But, 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 Michelle, during this time, was trying to be just this beacon of light for Conrad and was constantly encouraging him to seek help for his problems. That is until June 29th, 2014. Their text messages take a very dark turn in that Michelle stops encouraging him to join her at therapy or to find a psychiatrist of his own, and instead starts giving him ideas and tips on how to kill himself. She even sent him things like statistics on the likelihood of death if you do it by gunshot wound or by hanging or, or manners like that. She plotted with him on the best way to do it, and together they ultimately decided that carbon monoxide poisoning would be the way to go. Now, in the middle of all this, Conrad was 
doing his own research, too. There was lots of searches on his computer where he was looking at death by drowning, suicide by cop, and whatnot. So I get the impression that he was on board with this. Indeed, it, I mean, he's the one that's been talking about killing himself for so long. It's exceptionally odd that Michelle becomes the cheerleader behind it. But that didn't do anything to slow him down. Michelle kind of started acting like a jerk, in my opinion, towards the end, and that she would chastise Conrad for not following through with his promised suicide attempts and claiming that he was just BSing her. But in the middle of all this, Michelle wanted to make sure it was okay or wanted to confirm that they were boyfriend-girlfriend. Don't know why that needed to be done there, but it was very important to her at that time. From this change in Michelle's attitude, where she became aggressive about Conrad fulfilling his goal of killing himself, Conrad only lived another 15 days. Michelle lived in this odd, almost dream world-like state, where she acknowledged that Conrad was looking to die, but didn't truly believe it. Even in the weeks leading up to the suicide, she would text him quotes from shows about killing himself or quotes from movies or books along the lines. She would send odd texts to her friends where she was worried about Conrad, but the stories she would send to one friend versus another were never the same. Allegedly, at one point during Conrad's suicide attempt, he actually got out of the vehicle and called Michelle, and she directed him to get back in the vehicle and finish what he had started. The only evidence we have of that is a text message that she sent to a friend stating that. After their last phone conversation, phone records show that Michelle made 30 calls to Conrad in a rapid series. I don't recall his time of death, but essentially you have her calling at, say their first phone conversation ended at 10. She was calling at 10.02, 10.03, 10.05, 10.07, 10.10, just Back to back to back to back to back to back to back. She started sending out odd texts to Conrad's family and friends stating that Conrad was missing or concerned that he was dead um, and that he wasn't answering his phone calls. Would you please try to call him? Those sorts of things. Whether these were sincere in her mind or whether she was trying to create some sort of alibi is difficult to decipher. But after police get involved and investigate the suicide a little bit and read the thousands of texts from Michelle, they decide to charge her and indict her with, with the involuntary manslaughter. All right, now here's what happened at trial, which was kind of a circus in and of itself. When the trial began, Michelle, through the advice of her counsel, made an extremely interesting decision she waived her right to a jury trial. And the trial court allowed her to do it. That's odd because the jury was already there and the state's already paid for the jury to be there. And most judges I know wouldn't have let them go after the state had already spent money on them. That's really late in the process to waive your right to a jury trial. But he, the judge allowed it. Now, knee-jerk reaction from most folks is why on earth would 
a lawyer tell his client, let's go with a bench trial here rather than a jury trial. At least with a jury, you've got to convince 12 people that you're guilty before you can be found guilty and sentenced as a as a felon. Here, you just have the prosecution just has to convince one person, the judge. I believe this was a strategic decision made by counsel. And I want, I'll try not to belabor this, but I'll try I'll go through my thinking because I think there's a handful of reasons why this may be the case. First, she hired a very respected attorney, and it, there's no doubt in my mind he would know what judges are good and what judges are bad for a case like this. And he probably felt like they had drawn a good judge, maybe one who was friendly to females, mainly one who just wasn't tough on crime. I, I don't know. I'm speculating. But that's, from my experience, when you get a good judge, that's a huge factor in criminal trials since they make all the decisions regarding evidence and scheduling and whatnot. So he must have been happy with the judge they got. Second, this is not a case where there's going to be a lot of facts in dispute. Many of the facts in this case aren't disputed. It's a question of law. Is what Michelle did criminal? And a judge really should be the decider of law. If you force the case to be focused squarely on a legal issue, it helps take away some of the sting in defending a client because the prosecution can't beat you over the head with bad facts. You essentially agree to them. They'll acknowledge them. They'll try to use them. Don't get me wrong. But it won't become a battle over whether or not the facts are true. You acknowledge that they're true, and you're just saying, we don't believe this is a crime legally. And that plays into my third point on why this seems to be a smart tactical decision is judges don't like to make the law. That's the legislature's job. Since the 80s on, there's been a big push against the idea of judges you know, interpreting the law in such a way that they're creating new law. And no judge wants to get that reputation. And so Michelle's counsel is kind of forcing the hand here and is creating an argument that says, Judge, if you want to find my client guilty, you're going to have to make new law. Which is pretty savvy by him. Finally, this takes the burden off of Michelle testifying, and she didn't testify, Typically with a jury trial, jurors are really bothered when a defendant won't get up there and say, I didn't do it. Certainly you don't you have the right whether or not to testify, but a judge who's sophisticated in the law will understand why a defendant would not testify much easier. So we have that neat little twist that starts right off the bat. Now the prosecution began the trial, of course, since they have the burden of proving that Michelle's a criminal. And the theory of their case is Michelle's lonely. She's wanting attention. She wants to be popular. And what better way to do this than to have your boyfriend kill himself during the summer break? That way she can come back to school with a sob story, play the victim card, and hopefully parlay that into being very popular. You know, part of this effort, the prosecution showed a lot of the text messages that Michelle sent to people that were kind of pity me because my boyfriend is missing or dead, I'm scared. Again, those stories never matched up, but those are the general theme of them. Now, if you want to see the text messages 
that's being talked about here, Boston 25 News had a list of all of Michelle's text messages. So you can search for this case and Boston 25 News and pull them up. You can also just do general searches and uh, find that, yeah, you know, I found links to them through Reddit, through other websites. So there's lots of different places to go. Boston 25 News is just where I found them and read them. Now, remember, the prosecution's been on this case of Michelle wants to say, woe is me. But don't forget, Conrad's doing his own research. And that's what the defense argued. Is Conrad was walking down this dark path regardless of Michelle. In fact, he had walked down this path once before. So Michelle's influence in the defense's argument is minor to meaningless. In addition, and I think this is very important, the defense put on an expert witness who is a doctor, a psychiatrist, who claimed that the depression medication... Michelle was taking was changed right about the time her text went from being helpful to kind of dark. She was put on Celexa, and this doctor said that someone as young as Michelle, it's not unheard of for them to have a personality change when being put on Celexa. And typically, this personality change is the attitude towards depression suicide, death, changes dramatically. It's more of a minor topic than a major topic, but more notably is the patients become much more aggressive and much more hostile and much more insistent on getting their way. Now, apparently, the prosecution just tore this doctor a new one on cross-examination. It got so bad that when he was trying to wrap up his testimony and explain his thinking behind why he thought this change to Selexa was so important. Spectators in the galley started laughing at him. He, he apparently just became a clown. One bad thing about experts, and particularly doctors or engineers or PhDs, they tend to think they're the smartest person in the room on the area of their expertise. Naturally, they are, but part of being a lawyer is becoming an expert for a moment on what's being discussed. So I think the doctor wasn't prepared to really be challenged, and the prosecution just pantsed him in the courtroom. That being said, and of course, I'm no doctor, I don't know nothing about drugs or none of that, but my research supports the doctor's testimony. Apparently, Salaxa is known to cause pretty aggressive personality changes in people. It's not common, but it does happen in some cases. Okay, so remember how we talked about the prosecution, I'm sorry, the defense wanted to put the judge on the spot and force him to create new law? Well, the judge ultimately found Michelle guilty of involuntary manslaughter and he relied on a case from the 1800s to justify his decision to make it look like he was not creating new law. The case was one where a thief was being held in a cell next to a fellow that was going to be hanged the next day. For whatever reason, the thief convinced the doomed 
to go ahead and off himself the day before so the hangman wouldn't get his typical rate of pay for performing the job. Apparently, that petty theft was charged for murder. I couldn't find the case. I don't know the details of it, but it sounds almost comical. Interestingly, the court also specifically noted that the prosecution did not prove that Michelle's text messages caused Conrad's death, but found her guilty of involuntary manslaughter because she received that call from Conrad saying that he was scared and she talked him into going back into the car. Basically, she failed to aid Conrad. She had an opportunity to break the chain of events that was occurring and she chose not to. Ultimately, Michelle was sentenced to 15 months in prison, which she did not begin serving until recently as she was allowed an appeal bond. The verdict was upheld by all the Massachusetts appellate courts and review by the Supreme Court of the United States was denied within the past few weeks. Okay, for the ramifications, this case is actually a pretty big deal. And that's why you've probably heard of it because of the unique facts involved. But it really has a lot of momentum because of what it means beyond this case. Michelle was held criminally liable for a homicide in which she arguably took no direct action. She merely encouraged Conrad to do what he said he wanted to do. When the case was being reviewed by the Massachusetts Supreme Court, they found two cases in U.S. history where some a prosecution was allowed under what they considered to be similar circumstances. One is where a wife was depressed and was saying she wanted to kill herself, so the husband goes out, buys a gun, buys ammo, brings it back to the house, teaches her how to load the gun, teaches her how to fire it, about the safety, where to shoot herself for maximum effectiveness, all that. And guess what? She ends up killing herself. The second case was one involving a game of Russian roulette. In both of these cases, the defendant that went to jail seemed to be much more involved in the actual death than Michelle did. And if you think about it, in 250 years of U.S. legal history, across 50 states and the federal courts, there's only been three times where somebody's been held liable for someone else's suicide. With Michelle, we now have a fourth. I'm really, really bothered by the trial court's decision and its apparent analysis. If you'll recall... The trial court's justification for the conviction was that Michelle did not seek aid for Conrad. But as any first-year law student will tell you, there's no duty to aid. That's a foundational common law idea. There's no duty to aid unless you have created a dangerous situation. And certainly, I mean, the trial court said the texts from Michelle did not, were not, of a nature that he would find her guilty just because of those. So I don't see how you could say that she has created the situation here. He has placed a duty for her to aid when that's not what the law expects. 
when I was in law school, my torch professor described this concept in such a gruesome way as always stuck with me, and it usually gets a chuckle. If you're walking out to your car, you're in the parking lot, and you pass by a newborn baby laying face down in a shallow puddle of water, you, under the law, have no duty to do anything. You can keep on walking to your car. There's nothing criminal about that, and there's nothing that would result in you being sued. Even if all you have to do is take the toe of your shoe and flip the baby over onto its back to save its life, you have no duty to aid. Why, then, is Michelle being found to have a duty to aid when we don't even have to kick a baby? And two, that's in a civil context. In a criminal context, when there is a duty to aid, the burden to prove that would be much higher. We're talking about a reasonable, beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And that means you have to be so convinced that this person didn't render aid that there's no piece of evidence you can point to and say, that gives me a reason to doubt. Now, frankly, there wouldn't be a piece of evidence here, would there? Because all the facts are agreed to. It's a legal conclusion. And the judge made the legal decision that she had a duty to aid. There's no way that we can create a situation where we're comfortable with the idea that Michelle's text created the danger situation based on the trial court's order. So we are left with this weird conundrum of what is the duty now in Massachusetts? If I text you and say, kill yourself, and you do, if I don't aid you immediately, then I guess I'm going to be charged with homicide. What if I sent you a text that said, I wish you were dead, and then you killed yourself? What if I send you a text message and say, kill yourself, and you don't? Is that attempted homicide? Now, I'm being a little silly here, but I'm doing so to illustrate a point. We don't know how far the ramifications of this case will truly go. And coupled with the fact that nearly every state, as far as I know, in the United States has laws that criminalize cyberbullying, and I know for a fact Massachusetts does, it seems odd to charge her with homicide. Cyberbullying statutes were created by the legislature, and they're designed to address electronic forms of communication that create a harassing type of environment. If you believe that's what's going on here, then there's no reason to make this a murder charge because that's not what the legislature intended. She could have been charged under the cyberbullying statute, in my opinion. But now you have the cyberbullying statute being swallowed up into a homicide statute, which is not what the legislature apparently intended. Otherwise, they will have just amended the homicide code. But because of this decision, we now have precedent where aggressive district attorneys in the future can charge cyberbullying incidents as murder if it ends in the death of somebody. Now, of course, I'm not advocating cyberbullying. I'm not saying these people are awesome and we should give them every benefit of the doubt. I'm just looking at this purely from a jurisprudential perspective and once you start making the law fit 
the results that you want. You start perverting the law and it creates situations that you really don't want to create down the road and that you can't anticipate when you're making these decisions. And so I think the state, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts would have been much better off sticking to the cyberbullying and going that route. I'm also really concerned about Michelle's sudden change in behavior. I think the doctor's testimony was spot on and was ignored because he pooped his pants there in court. If that doctor could have testified in a competent way, I think we'd be looking at this case different because it's such a drastic change from Michelle to go from begging Conrad to come with her to her group therapy sessions, begging him to find a therapist of his own, begging him not to hurt himself, begging him not to do anything that he would regret that would cause her to lose him, to light switch flipped. You want to die? Okay, baby, we're going to find a way for you to die. And in 15 days, he did. That is extremely odd to me, and I'm bothered by it. And as you can tell, I don't really like this prosecution. I think it was a bad way to handle things. I'm not taking Michelle's side, I promise. What she did was morally reprehensible. To me, she is morally responsible for Conrad's death, but I do not think criminally she is a murderer. This is a young woman who needs some sort of mental health treatment. But you know what? She's going to be locked up in a cage for 15 months where she's not going to get adequate medical care or mental health care. And she's probably going to come out with more problems than when she went in. And she'll become a ward of the state or she'll become a career criminal. Since this is a case of two people who had severe mental problems, I really want to stress that mental health issues aren't a joke. They should always be treated seriously. I believe too many states use the criminal justice system to deal with people who are mentally ill and throwing folks with schizophrenia and whatnot in jail rather than sending them or placing them in a situation where they can get help and become rehabilitated. I know that we don't like the idea of rehabilitating prisoners anymore. We just want to punish people by locking them in a cage. But I don't want to say it's not their fault, but having a mental illness can make things, can skew your perception of reality such that if we could focus on getting the people healthy, we wouldn't have to worry about them being a problem in the future. I'm going to throw this out because I feel morally obligated to do so. If you know anyone that seems to be walking down a dark path, if you are having thoughts that you're not comfortable with, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is a wonderful, free service that you can take advantage of. Their phone number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. Do not hesitate to call if you feel like you are having some troubling thoughts or someone you love is having some troubling thoughts. As usual, my sources can be found in the show notes. Massive props again to Jesse Barron for the awesome article in Esquire. It really, truly is worth a read. And now we get to the highlight of the show, the palate cleanser. All right, palate cleanser. My kids told me nothing rhymes with orange. I told them they were wrong. That's the joke. Think about it. 
Nothing rhymes with orange. Orange and nothing don't rhyme. See? I knew we'd get there. Just had to climb that mountaintop so we can finish this roller coaster on a high mark. Okay, thank you so much for listening to me. I've had a lot of folks reviewing this podcast and leaving five stars. Cannot tell you what that means to me. I love it. I appreciate it. If you would, if you haven't done so and you enjoy this poop I'm putting out, then please uh, rate. You know, the more five stars we get, the more the more visible we'll be. The way all these algorithms and computer nonsense works. Now, I don't typically do this, but I also want to hint that next week is going to be our first case that would fall under the hidden category. We finally have something spooky. So please subscribe so you don't miss it. It's going to be a really good one. I'm very excited about it. It's it's weird. It's strange. And I think you'll get a kick out of it. And with that, I will say, see y'all next week. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.